Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to the Deseret News, Title 42, the controversial policy that allows Customs and Border Protection to turn migrants away without allowing them to file for asylum, is slated to end on May 23rd. Some call the move irresponsible and expect a surge of migrants to follow. Others say that if uh, Title 42 isn't lifted, migrants who fear for their safety or lives in their home countries and are seeking asylum will attempt a dangerous illegal border crossing. Today we're checking in on the situation at the border, and uh, we bring in uh, Chelsea Sacco, Managing uh, Attorney of the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project's Border Action Team. Chelsea Sacco, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for joining us. Did I uh, pronounce your name correctly? Yes, you did. Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, we also bring in Pedro de Velasco, Director of Education and Advocacy at uh, Kino Border Initiative. Uh, welcome to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and with your audience. Uh, and did, did I say your name approximately correctly? Yes, you oh, did. Uh, Pronounce it quite right. Thank okay. you. Okay, <laughs> very good. All right, uh, very good. Well, uh, let's jump in. Um, let me start with uh, Chelsea Sacco. Um, tell us about the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project and, and then what you do there. Absolutely. So the Florence Project, as it's known for short, is a um, <clears throat> legal service provider in the state of Arizona that mission is focused on um, increasing access to counsel um, and working towards universal representation for detained adults and children um, within immigrant detention facilities. My specific team, the Border Action Team, um, is a collaboration between the Florence Project and the Kino Border Initiative, where uh, Pedro works. And our, we were initially designed to um, provide legal orientations to asylum seekers while they are displaced at the border, um, and then provide direct representation if they were subsequently detained in Arizona detention. But over the past few years, as more and more harmful and restrictive border policies have been put in place, our attention has been focused full-time at the border. Uh, Pedro de Velasco, um, tell us about the Kino Border Initiative and what you do there. Yes, so <clears throat> Kino Border Initiative is a binational organization. We are located uh, in Nogales, Sonora, and Nogales, Arizona. We have an outreach center where we provide uh, humanitarian assistance to migrants, but it's a holistic approach, so it's not only about providing, uh, you know, a, a, a plate of food or, you know, where to sleep, but it's also this recognition of uh, another person's dignity and their humanity and their therefore their uh, capability of, uh, you know, achieving well-being and thrive on their own. And we also advocate for uh, just, humane and workable immigration between Mexico and the United States. Let me turn to uh, Chelsea Sacco. Um, what is Section 42? Title 42, as it's known, is a border policy um, that is under the public health code. So the public health code within the U.S. is called Title 42. And um, in March of 2020, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, uh, issued a, a 
policy essentially saying that due to the coronavirus pandemic, it was utilizing a little rarely used um, power to quarantine uh, persons uh, or uh, persons or things entering the U.S. Um, How it has worked on the ground is that essentially it has meant that for over two years, asylum seekers uh, have not been able to access uh, the asylum process whatsoever. And so what that means is is that if somebody walks up to a port of entry uh, and asks for asylum, they will be summarily turned away. There's no line that they can get in. There's no way in which they can uh, uh, seek any sort of process from the government. And so for two years, you have seen people displaced at the border under this harmful policy and and really abject, awful conditions. Mm. So this uh, public health um, law that's been being used... um to, I guess, a, to, to limit as an immigration, immigration mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. It's not based in public health. It's just under the public health code. And there have been public health officials for two years that have said um, that it's contrary to public health and it's um, it's not necessary. Hmm. Now there are some Democrats uh, who are you know wanting this to be delayed because of public health. Uh, Senator Coons was was quoted as saying he. he he, he, he's uh, worried about, uh, you know, rising levels of COVID. Um, uh, you know, he, he's taking this on its face value, the public health initiative. Uh, there have been a number throughout the last two years, but as recently as I believe last week or the week prior, there have been a number of uh, public health experts, medical experts who have gone on the record and written letters uh, to Congress, to the administration, to the public, explaining how uh, asylum seekers and immigrants do not bring in uh, coronavirus, and that that's an antiquated trope, and it has no sound basis in in public health logic. Mm. Pedro de Velasco, I wonder what uh, what you're seeing on the ground through this time. Uh, have uh, did the did the word get out and? Can you infer uh, that there are fewer people coming to seek asylum because they know that, well, I'm just going to be turned away anyway? Well, unfortunately, that hasn't been the case because, you know, we have been receiving constantly families that are, you know, being displaced. And, and that's the difference from a few years ago uh, till now, uh, compared to nowadays. It's not a choice. It's not all about uh, people deciding to immigrate to the United States to seek for a better future you know, it's more like they are forced out of their hometowns, of their home countries, by the organized crime, by gangs, by direct threats. And they are fleeing this violence. And it's when they arrive uh, to the border that they learn that there is no way through. So I remember uh, last July, we have a whole town from Guerrero, Mexico, that it was called uh, Leobardo Bravo. So the whole town was displayed by the organized crime. They basically arrive there and tell them, like, you know, uh, you have two choices. You either join us, work with us, or you get out of here. And they had to leave everything behind and arrive almost with only the, the clothes that they were wearing. And the frustration is that there was no way through because basically the United States, it's not even listening to their asylum claims. And, you know, these families, 
were able to, like, to get a, a, COVID, a negative COVID test and some even have a full uh, vaccination. But when they approach to the port of entry, they're not even listened. They are stand away saying, like, you know, there's no asylum right now under Title 42. And it's been, you know, it, it makes no sense because at the same time, like, you know, last year, yes, you have some restrictions for border crossing. Basically, only essential travelers were allowed to come inside of the United States. But it was very arbitrary who was considered an essential traveler because if you were a U.S. citizen or a legal permanent resident, it didn't matter what the, the purpose of your travel was, you were um, allowed to come inside the United States uh, with no questions asked. You have people, you know, visiting Mexico's beach or, you know, simply crossing through uh, Mexico for, you know, carne asada tacos and then getting back to the United States with no restriction whatsoever. But if a family that was fleeing violence and persecution approached the port of entry, they weren't allowed it. And, you know, on November 8 of last year, the restrictions to non-essential travelers were lifted. And at that time, I remember... Uh, Lionel's family, so it's uh, his wife and two children, they approached to the port of entry with proof of vaccination, with a negative COVID test, with evidence about the violence they were fleeing in their hometown. And when they approached to the border, to the border they were sent away because of Title 42. So again, as Chelsea was pointing out, it is not a health uh, policy. It's a border policy. It's an immigration policy. Uh, disguised as a health policy. Uh, Chelsea Sacco, um, wonder, you know, we're talking about folks here who are seeking asylum. Uh, they're hoping that their asylum claim will be uh, approved because they're fleeing violence or, or, or you know, something in, in their home country. Uh, what about those who are seeking, uh, you know, better life, uh, not necessarily fleeing violence? Uh, those folks wouldn't be seeking asylum, right? Um would, would those folks just go, go straight to seeking an illegal border crossing? Uh, so I think, I think that that question, it's a one I've been asked a lot, but I think that that question fails to understand the complicated uh, intersections of the realities on the ground for my clients. So a lot of Times it's painted as, oh, they're just coming here to work. They're just coming here for a better life. Um, but in fact, a, a lot of the fear that and violence that they are fleeing can be tied to their economic situation. So it's hard to be able to um, encapsulate the nuance and the ways in which poverty can intersect just because somebody is poor doesn't mean that they also don't have a valid fear of return to their to their country. Asylum at its core is about people who are fleeing persecution. Um, and what that persecution looks like, uh, we need to have a system that is best able to actually, first and foremost, give them a process to have that their case heard. Um, as is accounted for in our laws. And second, I think there's a lot of misconception of what, you know, you'll hear if something is a meritorious asylum claim or not, but there are so many technicalities within our asylum system. 
so many ways in which to try and trip up and prevent actually giving people who are fleeing very real, credible harm asylum. And so to frame it as they're, they're fleeing just for economic reasons, I think misses the point and fails to account for truly the way in which poverty can intersect with these other types of harm. Would the under a more uh, let's call it liberal asylum uh, policy, definitely Trump administration, you know, they they wanted to close the border, reduce immigration, um, and refugees coming in. Um, under a more open asylum policy, would I guess more folks would uh, get approved for asylum? I guess on a broad range of reasons. I I mean, it depends because you have to understand that every under our asylum laws, every case is supposed to be heard on on its merits and on an individual basis. Um, but the way in which the asylum system works is you also have different courts um, within this country that have different interpretations. So a case that may, you know, be considered for asylum in, say, um, Arizona and California and Oregon, where we're in the Ninth Circuit, may not be able to win asylum in, say, the Fifth Circuit or the Fourth Circuit or a different uh, part of the country. And so that can be incredibly confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly constructed. It's incredibly hard to win because there are a lot of things that asylum seekers have to prove. Um, and there are a lot of ways in which um, there are barriers uh, for them. So, for instance, one simple one is just having to apply within one year of entering the U.S. But in order to apply, you need to be able to read and write in English and be able to submit all of your documentation along with it. And that takes time in order to sit down and try and find an attorney who can help you do that. Um, But if you don't, then it's a lot harder to win asylum because there's actually uh, a bar of saying that you're no longer eligible. So that's just one example. I could go in more detail, but my my basic um, point with this is that it's not simply a matter of politics or who's in the administration. It's actually um, decades of asylum law regulations and interpretations that have made asylum incredibly challenging. Mm. Pedro de Velasco, I'd love to get your perspective on this broader the broader question of uh, you know a lot of reasons why people uh, seek to uh, to come into the United States um, and uh, how are folks being affected by the by the laws as, as currently enforced? Yes, of course. You know, uh, first of all, there's no containment policy that it's going to work. Uh, you know, because immigration is part of of uh, of not only the human race, but, you know, any other species. So just to keep that in mind, like, the, and, and again, Title 42 was supposed to be uh, a health-related policy, but now that the health authority, the CDC, has come and say, like, you know, there's no longer a justification, not that it ever was, but there's no longer justification to keep this policy in place because of the very low numbers. You know, Title 42 was supposed to, prevent further spread of COVID-19, but the numbers are very low right now. So there's like no justification to block the access to asylum. 
And uh, even so, you know, you, you hear of people wanting to maintain this policy that, again, we have all, always denounced that it wasn't health-related in the first place. And uh, I've been hearing arguments such as, you know, like it, it will create uh, massive amounts of people coming to the United States uh, illegally. But actually, it will create the other way, because uh, right now there's no legal pathway for a person to request asylum at the port of entry. And, you know, many families uh, out of desperation are forced to decide, you know, taking the riskier way, you know, the, the, the more dangerous and uh, life-threatening path through the desert or, in the case of Texas, through the river or, you know, jumping through the wall. And, and they're doing this with their children out of uh, desperation because there is no legal access at the port of entry. So, and, and when we are advocating, you know, for an end of Title 42, it doesn't mean like, you know, grant asylum to every single person that is uh, coming to the border. That's when we talk about workable immigration. It's, it's about, you know, treating them with dignity and respect, with humanity, to at least listen to their claim. And if they do qualify for, you know, the asylum, uh, that, the, the asylum process that is set, on both international and domestic law, then by all means granted. And if not, you know, they simply don't qualify for asylum. But right now, not a, a single person is listened to at the port of entry. And that is unjust. And that is not what the, the laws of the United States should be about. Let's take a break. We'll come back. Uh, much more to talk about. When we come back, I want to uh, pick up that thread. Um, some are saying, yeah, using words like chaos and uh, you know, mess and uh, the wave of migrants. Others, uh, the administration, Biden administration says, no, we've we've got a plan in place. It's going to be orderly and uh, it'll, it'll be fine. I'll, uh, I'll get the perspective from, from both of you and we'll t- talk about much more, of course, uh, following um, this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about uh, immigration. Uh, we're talking specifically about Title 42, a policy that allows Customs Border Protection to turn migrants away without allowing them to file for asylum. That's a um, it's a health uh, law that the uh, Trump administration implemented um, to uh, uh, critics say to just to reduce uh, uh, reduce immigration. Um, Trump administration said, uh, no, they were, they're doing this for health reasons. In any case, the Biden administration, um, is slated to end Title 42 implementation on May 23rd. I believe Senator Tester and others are sponsoring a bill in the Senate, which would delay the, uh, the cessation of uh, Title 42. We'll see what happens there. Uh, we're talking with uh, Chelsea Sacco, Managing Director of the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project's Border Action Team, and Pedro de Velasco, Director of Education Advocacy at the Kino Border Initiative. Uh, so, uh, Chelsea Sacco, uh, we've got a little bit of perspective from Pedro de Velasco uh, before the break. I want to get your perspective. Um, some are saying that uh, the ending Title 42 would turn what is already what they characterize as a crisis on the border into a catastrophe. Um, others uh, say, well, the, the Biden administration says, no, we have a we have a plan. It's going to be orderly. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I ultimately agree with uh, my colleague Pedro de Velasco. So the as 
as Pedro highlighted, um, part of Title 42 is that people for two years, asylum seekers, have been unable to access any sort of process at the border. If you walk up to a port of entry, you're summarily denied and turned away, even when you have proof that you are COVID negative. Um, And so what this has created is essentially a large number of displaced asylum seekers at our border. So when you hear numbers um, from the administration or from different saying that, oh, there's going to be a surge or a flood of people, it it fails to take into account that this has been self-created and man-made by design um, because it's it's essentially created, um, for lack of a better word, a traffic jam. You've kept people blocked from being able to access any level of process that they have a right to access. People have a right to a process under our asylum laws in the U.S. and under U.S. law. And so when you talk about having high numbers of apprehensions at the border, a lot of people are repeat crossers because there is no other way for them to seek safety. And there hasn't been for two years. So one of the things that we have been repeatedly saying for two years to um, U.S. government officials, to the public, is if you opened up access to ports of entry and there were safe, orderly, and humane asylum processing, people will go through ports of entry. There's will. They've showed that time and time and again. They are, are willing to wait to protect their own lives and that of their children. Um, what I hear on a regular basis from my clients is I want to do it the right way. Um, I want to enter through a port of entry. And so is really when we talk about ending Title 42, we're not talking about anything radical or new. We're not talking about, you know, an open borders policy. All we are talking about is restoring what was in place for decades, what was in place for years, which is that somebody could walk up to a port of entry express their fear of return to their country and be processed accordingly by CBP officials. Um, DHS as an agency and its sub-agencies have the expertise and uh, to, to know how to process people into the country. NGOs such as that of Pedro's and, and mine, as well as other colleagues around the border have been involved in providing legal or humanitarian services. Uh, you were cutting out just a little. You're cutting out just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are. My point is, is that there are also NGOs and nonprofits on the ground in these communities and throughout the U.S. who stand ready with expertise on how to receive asylum seekers. And so, ending Title Forty Two is just about restoring what there was four years before. Hmm. Um, let me turn to Pedro de Velasco and ask you, you talked a little bit about this earlier. I want to ask you, and then I'll ask Chelsea Sacco the same question, which is, uh, you know, say someone comes uh, to the border under Title 42, you're not going to get a hearing. Um, perhaps you're fleeing something very dangerous in your home country. Well, then what do you do? What do you do? What do people do at that point? 
Yes, and you know that's what we've been seeing for the last two years, and what we are, you know, advocating for an immediate end of Title Forty Two for everyone and for good, because we are seeing the cases of uh, families that are coming, uh, you know, fleeing violence, persecution at their hometowns, their home countries, and it is really frustrating to them because it's until they arrive to, in this case, Nogales to the to, the, but basically to the border that they're learning that it's virtually impossible for them to even be heard. You know, it's like they're sent away by uh, CBP officials at the ports of entry without even being able to express why is it that they are arriving in the first place. And, you know, a lot of them, as, as Chelsea was pointing out, it's like, you know, and, and this is a question that is uh, very common to, to, to listen from folks in the United States, like, you know, why don't they come legally? But if you come down here and learn that there's virtually no access to come legally, then you understand that it is out of frustration because they are not safe. You know, when they arrive to a border town, it's not like, you know, border towns are uh, completely unsafe for everyone. But, yeah, the organized crime is present, and migrants are particularly vulnerable to the organized crime. And right now, they have the monopoly on who gets to cross the border because of the lack of access uh, with uh, CBP officials through the U.S. government. So uh, uh, the only way for a migrant to cross to the United States right now is paying the organized crime in order to cross there because they have the monopoly. And it's not like they are like uh, years ago that you have the, the, the smugglers, the coyotes, approaching people and say, you know, like, hey, I can help you cross. It's more like, you know what, if you want to cross, it's through me because I'm the only pad right now. So they are becoming really aggressive towards migrants. We've been listening about kidnappings, about forced crossings. And, you know, these are, are, are not male individuals uh, on their own. They're families. They're children. They're being subject to this risk every single day as Title 42 keeps in place. And, uh, you know, I remember the testimony of this uh, young man called Joel, who is from Guatemala, and he was expelled under Title 42 without being listened to his claim. And immediately after being expelled, he was walking through not knowing his way because he didn't cross through Nogales. And uh, he found himself close to the railroad, and the municipal police apprehended him, and they turned him over to the organized crime and they uh, extortioned their, his family back in Guatemala trying to get some more money, but they didn't have any. So they beat him and they released him. And that's when he arrived to us at Kino Border Initiative. So stories like this are, you know, constant every single day. And it is because there's virtually no access for a migrant to request humanitarian assistance or protection at the port of entry. Joseph Saka, I want to ask you the same question with, from your experience, people you worked with, people you're hearing uh, from, uh, the person comes hoping uh, for an asylum hearing, doesn't get it, uh, then what do you do? Um, it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, as an attorney, we're, we're taught to be very objective and, and to lay out our clients' options for them so we can empower them to make the best choice possible. And and right now, there there are no good options. There's no, it, it's impossible. Um, and it's and I think Pedro really covered the desperation. I um, 
I don't take it lightly when someone is looking at me for solutions because they are desperate and they know that returning home is not an option. That is something I hear every single day. My team hears every single day. I cannot go home. Um, and yet there's no way to move forward and to have your case heard. A lot of people that we see right now are Mexican nationals. So, in fact, they are displaced in their country of harm, um, where their perpetrators uh, can easily locate and find them. I have heard so many stories um, of, you know, trigger trigger warning for the audience about some severe violence. But I've seen people who have been tortured and bear the scars of that torture. I have talked to people who have been uh, raped, sexually assaulted, um, kidnapped, and held hostage. I have talked with people who um, have had to snatch their kids out of the arms of people attempting to kidnap their children. Um, and I think I want to return to your earlier question about, you know, Title 42 ending and what would it mean. There, we, we've seen that this is, Title 42 disparately impacts only certain nationalities. Um, because of the way in which it's carried out on the ground. So uh, when Ukrainians were first coming to Tijuana and the border um, before a new policy called United for Ukraine, which was recently announced, before that existed, um, there was a, just a, a memo that said that Title 42 should not apply to Ukrainians. And so we were seeing at certain ports of entry, the government uh, was able to process um, thousands of people from the Ukraine. And we support that because they are asylum seekers, they are refugees, and they deserve humanitarian protection. But we've also seen that while that was possible within a time span of a month, um, uh, the clients that we serve, which tend to be black and brown asylum seekers from the Western Hemisphere, have been routinely and summarily denied access to safety and protection and to a process. And when you see the injustice every single day up close, um, it is incredibly hard to know how to uh, not only comfort someone in that position, but even counsel them of what their options are, because they genuinely feel like they have no options and they are fleeing for their life at every turn, including while they're waiting at the border. Hmm. I was going to ask you, uh, I'll turn this to, to you, Chelsea Sacco, um, and... Um, Get a perspective as well from Pedro de Velasco. Uh, are Ukrainians uh, of appearing uh, at the border for asylum? It seems like that's, uh, I've been reading about that, coming through Mexico and then appearing at the southern border. So the simple answer is is yes, um, but not from, uh, and Pedro may have seen that as something else, but not, not that I have personally um, seen. Um the, the, my understanding from colleagues at other parts of the border is that they were um, previously in Tijuana and the San Diego area, um, but now that there is a United for Ukraine pro- program, uh, some of that has has tempered a bit, mm-hmm. and they are able to seek support through this newer channel um, mm-hmm. and program called United for Ukraine. But I have not personally seen any of them in Nogales, Sonora, where Pedro and I work out of. Ah, got you. Pedro de Velasco, what, have you seen this? What, what's your perspective of this, Ukrainians coming through Mexico, appearing at the southern border? 
Yes, uh, it's the same. Uh, we we haven't personally encountered any uh, Ukrainians at the Nogales border. It's, or as Chelsea was pointing out, the vast majority are uh, Mexican nationals, particularly from the southern Mexico, such as Guerrero, Michoacán, Chiapas, uh, Estado de Mexico, and a lot of uh, people from Guatemala, uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and some uh, Haitians as well. But um, it's it, it, what we. Since, since you know the the, the situation in in he, he Ukraine began and and uh, more people started arriving, we we heard from uh, colleagues that were in Tijuana, uh, San Diego region about this difference in treatment when a, a person uh, from he, he Ukraine arrived to the to the border, they were allowed, they were allowed in, and that's the situation. If it was really again Title Forty Two a health-related policy, then why is it, uh, you know, considering different based on nationalities? And also, you know, something that we have seen is that people from Mexico and Central America, they are immediately expelled, you know, the ones that cross uh, not through the designated port of entry because nobody's allowed in through a designated port of entry. You know, the ones that are crossed through the desert, jumping through the wall or else, and they are uh, encountered by the U.S. immigration officials, they are immediately expelled back to Mexico because Mexico is willing to take them. But there are certain nationalities that Mexico wasn't willing to take, and therefore, uh, you know, they were processed inside of the United States. And again, it's like somehow uh, for years the U.S. government was saying, like, the right way, if we can call it like that, the right way to request asylum was to present yourself at the port of entry and request it. But then right now, if a person from any given nationality presents at the port of entry, they're not allowed in. But if they, you know, go enter unlawfully, you know, not through the port of entry, and if they are from a nationality that Mexico is not willing to take back, then they have to be processed inside the, the United States. So it's, it's just, you know, the way that it's been applied, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not just for anyone. And... and it, this has to stop. This situation really has to stop. And, you know, when it was announced, we thought that May 23rd was, you know, too far away, but at least we now have a date. And, you know, when we start hearing about moving it farther away, it was discouraging not only for us, but, you know, for the, the migrants that we have been working and that they had been protesting and, and, you know, asking for the recognition of the right to request asylum. And, and they, they, you know, we have, for example, Carla that said, like, uh, she wanted President Biden to keep up his, his promise to restore asylum and the, the congressional members to respect the decision that has been taken. And that they were, you know, hopeful when the news of uh, were broken about the, the, the end of Title 42 that was near. But, you know, it, that afterwards, it kind of like... Uh, they were florid with the, the news of uh, the lawsuit and the introduction of the bipartisan bill. So it's it's very discouraging. Or we also have, you know, the the testimony of, of, of Victor that said, like, you know, two months is too long when your lives are at balance. You know, I, I could be dead in two months. So, again, it, you know, for some people, it's like, yeah, let's just move the date a little farther away. But that's the difference, you know, when you're your life is at balance. You don't have two months to wait. Well, let's take another break. Um, we'll talk more about this uh, when we come back. We're uh, talking about specifically about Title 42, 
which is set to expire on uh, May 23rd. We'll see what happens. Uh, and uh, we're talking about migration in general. We're talking with Chelsea Sacco, a managing attorney of the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project's Border Action Team, and Pedro de Velasco, Director of Education and Advocacy for the Kino Border Initiative. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We reached our last segment uh, for the program today, another 10 minutes or so. And uh, we're talking about immigration in general, and specifically Title 42, the policy that allows Customs and Border Protection to turn migrants away without allowing them to file for asylum. It's a public health uh, law used by the Trump administration, uh, enacted in uh, March of 2020, and the Biden administration uh, has announced they're going to let that expire on May 23rd. Um, so, uh, Chelsea Sacco, right now, I guess you're you're planning that uh, it's it's uh, going to be lifted on the 23rd and uh, back to the way it was before. Uh, I'm planning, you know, I'm tempering expectations um, because I am planning for what that a post Title 42 world would look like. Um, as are our colleagues. So we are in regular discussions for, um, you know, as I said, how to receive people within the U.S. in a a safe, dignified, and humane way. And that requires working with uh, local municipal governments, NGOs on the ground, whether uh, they are, you know, shelters on either side of the border, um, working with uh, DHS agencies for how to prepare and respond to this. So yes, we, we are preparing for that. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, I have to temper expectations for my clients because their lives are at stake. One of the things I frequently have to talk to, um, various stakeholders, including the public about are you know, Border policies are confusing. They are. You know, there's Title 42. There's the Remain in Mexico program. There's been um, other iterations. And so it it can be hard for different people to keep up and and understand what one policy does and what one doesn't. And then there's a lawsuit or a senator or a congressperson that comes in to change course. It is confusing. But your lives don't depend on understanding it. My clients do. They have to every single day, figure out how to protect themselves and their children. Uh, And knowing that a stroke of a judge's pen could completely alter the course of their rights to seek asylum and their safety and protection, I have to prepare them for that possibility. And so, yes, we are absolutely preparing for the end of Title 42 on May 23rd. um, And we stand ready, able, and willing to, to support asylum seekers in that end. But if the any of the uh, legislative or um, judicial actions to prevent the end of Title 42 um, on May 23rd are successful, I'm also preparing my clients for that possibility because their lives hang in the balance. Pedro de Velasco, I want to ask you, both of you, I want to ask you about the wall. Um, this is, you know, President Trump, uh, symbolic, of course, but, uh, you, you know, then he set out to at least try to try to actually build it, right? And the sections, uh, 
uh, of the, the border fencing have been reinforced, and uh, I think additional sections, some additional sections put in. What is uh, what has been the effects on the ground where you are? Well, you know, I can tell you that right here in, in Arizona, they don't call it the desert of the dead for, for anything. So, you know, hundreds of people lose their lives every, uh, not not only every year, but, you know, it's every month, particularly during the summer that you see how, uh, you know, the number of uh, human remains that are retrieved from the desert uh, start, start to pile up. And, it, and it's really Horrible, and this is direct consequence of uh, this uh, deterrence policy. You know, including building this wall that is, uh, you know, just on the on the main areas like the, you know, the cities, and then it starts to, you know, getting to the to other places. But the 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 regions that are further away, they they have just like what they call vehicle barriers. They are, you know, like even a, a young person can easily. Uh, you know, spread his or her legs and go through without any further complication. But those areas are very remote and on the more most dangerous uh, parts of the of the desert, where there's basically nothing, and, and there's no way that you can carry enough uh, amount of water to you know a, a arrive to 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 safety. So. And and this was like the 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 route that migrants, you know, but back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you only see adult male individuals crossing through these areas and unfortunately losing their lives. But right now you're seeing that the organized crime is having families cross, crossing through those remote areas that there's basically nothing and just telling them like, okay, yeah, make yourself uh, apprehend, you know, apprehended by border patrol and then you request asylum, you know, and, and they are knowing that they don't care that they are going to be sent back because of Title 42. But that's what we are seeing. So the wall is only, you know, generating that more and more people are losing their lives because they are being forced to cross through these uh, more dangerous, more uh, remote areas. And, and that's what we are seeing in that regard. Uh, Justice Sarko, uh, anything you'd like to say about the wall? And then I have another question. Uh, no, I have not oh, okay. um, So I, I know you've heard this argument before. I want to, you know, just present it to you. Uh, those those who want more restrictive uh, immigration or uh, controls say that uh, we have to emphasize rule of law. And if we don't have rule of law, then um, then who are we, right? And then and so get in line. Uh, what would you say to that? Don't you have to, doesn't the government have to follow the law for there to be rule of law? Under the law, somebody has a right to request asylum, whether they're at a port of entry or crossing through a desert or crossing through a mountain or a river. If you are fleeing persecution and harm, you have the right to request asylum. And if you do so, there should there is a process that the U.S. government must follow. There, there's a court case that says as such um, within uh called Al Otro Lado de Mayorkas. It's in um, California. And so most of the clients, all of the clients I talk with, they want to follow the law. As Pedro and I have said, how can you do that when you walk up to the designated place under the law to request asylum and you are summarily denied and turned away? 
Our clients have done everything right. Everything. They have come with proof that they are are COVID negative and or vaccinated. They have expressed their fear. They have, many of them have not crossed and the ones that have have done so only after being desperate or as Pedro covered, being forced and coerced into it. How, how are you supposed to follow the law when the when the U.S. government isn't giving you any of the legal pathways? I just have a couple minutes left. Um, we'll turn uh, maybe for the last word to Pedro de Velasco. Um, of course, as, as uh, Chelsea Sacco said, uh, I imagine you hope that May 23rd, the the Title 42 is is lifted. What uh, what else are you hoping uh, to see from maybe from the Biden administration on this? Yeah, I guess you know it's always about hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. So uh, we know that you know it's uh, a strong chance that this is going to be uh, fighting, and and the May 23rd may not mean the end of Title 42. So we are prepared to keep advocating. And, and as Chelsea was saying, you know, like, we're being really, I mean, not we, but, you know, talking about a nation, really um, hypothesis hy- hy- uh, about, you know, when we decide to apply the law and when we decide not to to uh, apply it, you know, and, and that's not what the rule of law is about. So it's, it's um, you know, just given legal access for people to request asylum. Just treat them with humanity and, and respect, you know, and, and, and if they don't qualify for asylum, again, following the law, then, you know, okay, they, they don't get to, you know, be granted asylum. But if they do, it, 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 it's unjust and it's unlawful, actually, that you are not even taking the time to listen to their claims. And, and that's what we're hoping, you know, for a, a humane, just, and workable migration between Mexico and the U.S. You know, we're hoping that, uh, you know, the Biden administration delivers their, their promise and restores asylum. And, you know, it's, again, it's like both, uh, you know, political parties only remember uh, migrants when it's election time. And this, this has to stop, you know. we. Us migrants cannot be the, the, the punching back every time that elections come. You know, it's, it, we're talking about human lives. And the whole immigration system needs to be changed because, you know, again, you know, laws should, should deliver justice. But when the laws are getting in the way, when laws are preventing you from delivering justice, then the laws have to change. And I can tell you firsthand how difficult it is for a migrant to be able to uh, immigrate to the United States. And, and it's really complicated. You know, you, you cannot apply on your own for a work visa. And, and you know, if, uh, if it's not a, a, an immediate relative, you know, you cannot, uh, the wait times are, are crazy, particularly for Mexican nationals, from Filipino nationals, from Indian nationals and Chinese nationals you know, to ever immigrate to the United States. And, and, and then you have uh, the humanitarian immigration, and it's really also closed because of, of, of these restrictions. And to ask on that, right now there's no access at all, no way for a, a migrant to request asylum at the port of entry. So, yes, 
I'm hoping for a change. The end of Title 42 is only a start. There are a lot of policies that also have to, you know, get away, like remain in Mexico policy. There needs to be a, a, a restoration of the access to the asylum process. There needs to be a change in the immigration system. But it, I guess it's one step at the time. Well, we've uh, reached the end of our uh, hour. We've been talking about immigration uh, generally and uh, Title 42 specifically. And uh, we've been talking with Pedro de Velasco, Director of Education and Advocacy at the Kino Border Initiative. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we've also been uh, talking with uh, Chelsea Usako, uh, Managing Attorney for the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project's Border Action Team. Thank you to you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your program. It's been, uh, it's been a privilege. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Dams are a vital part of Utah's water infrastructure, but they sometimes fail. A breach of the Mammoth Dam in 1917 sent millions of gallons of water rushing downstream and exposed its poor conditions of construction and operation. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. On June 24, 1917, the watchman at Mammoth Dam reported the reservoir's water levels were holding steady. He left for lunch and returned to a dramatically different scene. The dam had given way. The waters released by the dam failure were catastrophic, sweeping away properties and threatening the lives and livelihoods of Carbon County's downstream communities. Makeshift conditions and inadequate operating procedures were just some of the all-too-common and preventable infrastructure issues that led to the Mammoth Dam failure. The dam was initially built in 1902 on the Wasatch Plateau between San P and Carbon Counties by the Price River Irrigation Company. By 1914, it was already up for renovations, but the reconstruction plans were never approved by the state engineer. Even still, the company was eager to store water and willing to overlook safety precautions in the process. With construction still underway, the company placed form boards around the top of the dam to accommodate increasing water levels, the rural, mostly immigrant population living in Carbon County communities downstream depended on Mammoth Dam, but had the most to lose by its failure. When the watchman returned from his lunch on that June afternoon, he immediately called the dam caretaker for help. It took nearly two hours for the caretaker to arrive by horseback. Unfortunately, his desperate attempts to rescue the situation failed. The dam was entirely breached and a crushing force of millions of gallons of water was released downstream. Thanks to early warning from the watchmen, no lives were directly lost, although vulnerable residents of Schofield, Castlegate, and Helper spent one scary night racing for higher ground ahead of the rushing waters. There were significant damages to property, crops, and businesses in the surrounding region, including nearly 30 miles of Denver and Rio Grande Railroad track completely washed away. Dams are central to Utah's water infrastructure, but require maintenance. The shoddy upgrades to Mammoth Dam ultimately resulted in disaster and damage, and threatened the safety of Carbon County's working-class communities. It wasn't until a series of nationwide dam failures in the 1970s that the government developed stronger dam safety regulations, hoping to protect those living downstream from aging infrastructure. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. 
for the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities. I'm Megan Weiss.